0: Hello everyone and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast episode number 54. I'm your host Rick Cole and each week we take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years ago and we give you all the hockey and sporting news from that time period. This week we are in the first seven days of November 1970. Our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Uh, Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and their support's been crucial to uh, enabling us to uh, conduct our research. Uh, They let us get into all the newspapers from 50 years ago where we find all this great news. We're also sponsored by the Breakball Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port, Colbert, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal and a few blocks from Lake Erie. The folks of the Breakwall produce outstanding craft beers, many of which are made from recipes that were first written back in the 1800s. They also have some of the best pub food on the planet. And if uh, any of our listeners can ever get down Port Colborne Way, I'd love to join you at the Breakwall for a burger and a beer once it's safe to do so during these crazy times we live in. We'd also like to remind you about our new Patreon account Uh, and a shout out to a couple of the the newest patrons from the the last few days, Wayne Baxter and Paul Charlton. Welcome guys and thanks so much for your support. Uh, We hope you're enjoying the bonus content we're putting out and we have some really neat stuff in the hopper coming out soon. We're doing the work on those things right now. Uh, Some of the items we're working on include a very in-depth look at how the media treated the death of Terry Sawchuck, and I'll provide my perspective as a uh, former police detective. We're also going to do something on the Kurt Flood case. I've been reading a bit this week, and 50 years ago this week, Kurt actually was traded once again, but the circumstances are markedly different, and we'll be examining that as well in the special episodes that we're planning for our patreon describe uh subscribers we'll have lots more coming up as well and if you'd like to donate and like to get this special content go to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and they'll show you there how to take part Last week, uh, we had some pretty interesting talk to go about. A lot of trade rumors uh, swirling around the NHL in this early part of the 1970-71 season. And we found out that trade rumors in the 70s uh, weren't all that different than what we get today, except that we didn't have the internet where wannabe sports writers could set up websites and and put out uh, all kinds of goofy stuff that really had no basis in reality. We had more on the uh, dissension and dysfunction surrounding the Detroit Red Wings as people around the NHL began to take notice and more and more stories were being written about the mess that is Detroit. And we had a story about all-time great NHL defenseman Doug Harvey being arrested at an Ottawa airport for carrying a loaded gun. The situation, though, wasn't quite as serious as one might imagine and things were taken care of rather expeditiously And Doug suffered no lasting impact from the arrest. This week as we move into the month of November, we have uh, lots of stuff going on, on and off the ice in the National Hockey League. We'll talk about some of the key games that took place, maybe have a little bit of audio this time. Uh, We have more trades uh, being talked about in the NHL, and actually a couple were were completed. Not surprisingly, these trades weren't mentioned in any of the previous week's rumors, go figure. We have news on the Stafford Smythe tax evasion case and that'll be a little surprising and maybe a little concerning and uh, we'll talk a little bit uh, about NHL defenseman Bobby Bond. Bobby had a very busy week and we will provide for you his itinerary. First up this time around, we have some of the week's more interesting game results. And the first contest this week we want to talk about took place Wednesday evening in Los Angeles in a game between the Kings and the visiting Toronto Maple Leafs. The game was significant because it was the first time the two teams had met since Toronto had traded veteran forward Bobby Pulford to the Kings in exchange for a couple of kids. Pulford didn't disappoint what was a disappointing crowd of only 8,161 showing up at the forum. He scored two goals to lead the Kings to a 3-2 to victory over his former club, the Maple Leafs. The game wasn't a classic by any means, and you couldn't even classify this game as an upset for the Kings. Normally, uh, even though the Kings were the worst team in the NHL last year, an expansion team is normally considered to be a huge underdog against any club from the Eastern Division. But the Leafs are no great shakes this season. And uh, realistically, the game had to be considered a toss-up. And, and it actually was. The Kings held the edge in play and were full value for the win. They they deserved it. In fact, it was the fine play of Toronto goalie Jacques Plante that kept the game as close as it actually was. He was especially strong over the first forty minutes when Los Angeles outshot the Leafs by a margin of twenty four to eighteen and Plant made several spectacular saves to keep the Leafs either ahead or tied until the third period. Plant was tested from the opening whistle and Los Angeles actually got the first break when uh, Jim Dory, defenseman for the Leafs, was sent off at the four hundred twenty mark for high sticking. Now, Pulford, playing his first regular season game against his former teammates, scored just seconds later when he took a pass from winger Ross Lonsbury. Plant then stopped a close-in bid from Mike Byers, a former Leaf prospect, on a 2-1-1 break, and two minutes later, he did the splits in his inimitable fashion to stop Yuha Whiting's blistering slap shot from just inside the blue line. The Leafs tied the score at 14:38 of the opening frame when Gary Monahan, who was traded for Pulford, stole the puck from defenseman Jill of the de Kings deep in the Los Angeles zone and he beat Dennis DeJordy from close range. Four minutes later, Davey Keon was put in a clear by a pass from defenseman Mike Pellick but Dennis DeJordy saved the day that time, making a great glove save for the Kings. Dave would eventually get even with DeJordy for robbing him that time by uh, putting the Leafs into a two-one lead at 4:43 of the second period. Davey uh, stole a pass from former Leaf Eddie Shack of the Kings near Toronto's own blue line. Davey streaked down the ice and neatly deked DeJordy for his sixth goal. Of the season. Dave off to a good start this year for the Leafs. That goal, by the way, came while the Leafs were shorthanded, and Plant had been given the penalty that made them that way, as he uh, got a penalty, believe it or not, for elbowing. Uh, By the way, the Leafs had little use Bob Liddington serving the penalty for Plant at that time. Bob Pulford would score a second of the game before the period would end to put the Kings even with the Leafs at 2-2, and that set the stage for the winning goal, which was scored by Los Angeles left winger Bob Berry partway through the third period to give the Kings a surprising, well, actually not so surprising, but a very badly needed 3-2 win against the Maple Leafs. Toronto coach Johnny McClellan, who looks as forlorn as anyone possibly could after a loss, uh, wasn't happy after this game for sure. But with whom was the coach most upset? Johnny's anger was uh, directed mostly at rookie referee Dave Newell, not the LA Kings or any of his players. All three Los Angeles goals came on power plays, and one of the Leafs goals by Davey Keon... Came, as I mentioned, while Toronto was a man short. McClellan said, I don't very often go after a referee, but that was the worst I've ever seen. McClellan went on to call Newell a homer, saying he could only see two colors out there, and they were blue and white. Johnny said, the two third period penalties were murder. When the Kings did it, it was a legal check. When the Lease pulled the same stunt, It was off to the penalty box. Johnny made one more comment to the assembled reporters. He said they stole it off us. That's a hell of a way to lose a hockey game. Um, Bad calls by a referee. Now interestingly enough, the Western uh, Director of Officials, a fellow by the name of Dutch Van Dielen, was at the game watching Newell's work and he said that the young referee was inconsistent and that's about as forceful a, a, an admonishment against the referee that that guy would ever give if you wonder how Bobby Pulfer felt about the game well he didn't gloat but he did express some satisfaction of beating his old team Pulley said that sure felt good you play 14 years in Toronto you get traded west and it has to give you a large lift to help beat them in your first league meeting Pulford went on to say that the Kings right now are playing well and will give any other teams in either the East or West divisions a run for the money. Bobby says this was a big one for us, especially for the fellows who once belonged to Toronto. Next, let's look at a Thursday evening matchup in Buffalo between the two new National Hockey League expansion teams, the Sabres and the Vancouver Canucks. The Sabres were anxious to exact some revenge upon the Vancouver's for an embarrassing loss back out on the left coast in October, and they found that the Canuckleheads weren't about to cooperate with those plans, even in enemy territory, as it were. It wasn't the drubbing that occurred in their first meeting in Vancouver, when the Sabers were trounced seven to two, but nonetheless Buffalo went down to defeat before a crowd of Memorial Auditorium of only seven thousand four hundred and four. The score was four to one, Vancouver. This was the fifth loss in a row for the Sabers, and their third at home against a win and a tie so far this season it was a Canucks first road win and followed five straight defeats for Vancouver away from the Pacific Coliseum Steve Atkinson was making his first start in a Buffalo uniform at least in regular season and he gave the Sabres the lead in the first period but after that the club just didn't show much the rest of the way now Buffalo did hold a 32 to 22 shooting advantage over the 60 minutes but the Canucks actually had more good scoring opportunities. Many of the Buffalo shots came from the outer ranges outside the blue line away from the boards and not from anywhere directly in front of the goal. The Canucks out and out bumped the Sabres in what was Actually, a pretty slow moving game, and they were the first to the puck and won all the puck battles all night. Roger Crozier gave the Sabres some first line goaltending as he usually does, and Dunk Wilson, with only a half dozen dangerous drives to handle, was very good between the pipes for Vancouver. Punch Himlack said after the game, The referee cost us a goal because he wasn't in position to see the play. Once they got ahead, we just Weren't good enough. We're not good enough to overcome bad breaks. Hal Lako, who was a one time American Hockey League Buffalo Bisons defenseman and is now the coach of the Vancouver Club, lauded the Canucks defensive work. He said we checked with authority and we tightened up. We should be able to tighten up after allowing eleven goals in our five previous games. That makes sense, Hal. Bud Poyle the Canucks general manager was all smiles as well and he said all I know is that we're leading the Vancouver Buffalo division two to nothing and that's what really counts to me because Bud Poyle is a realist and he knows other than the Sabres there aren't many NHL teams the Canucks will be able to beat on a regular basis. The Sabres, with a slight edge across the first 20 minutes of play, opened the scoring at 14:06 when the Canucks saw huge defenseman Pat Quinn gave the puck away twice on one play. Steve Atkinson stole it from him at the defense and Quinn blocked his shot. As Quinn reached for the loose rubber, Atkinson hooked it away from him again and then he beat Wilson with a close-in 10-footer. In the second period, Paul Peel, a native of Denmark and a former Buffalo Bison player as well, equaled his entire earlier NHL output when he scored two goals for Vancouver less than five minutes apart. Alone in front, he banged in Rosaire Paymont's rebound at 203 of that middle frame. And then unchecked again at 634, he put a five fitter, a five footer, into the Buffalo goal off of Roger Crozier's skate as he stretched to make the save. The Canucks Barry Wilkins pulled down newly acquired Paul Andrea from behind to set up a penalty shot during that middle frame as well. Andrea skated in but failed to get off a backhand shot when Dunk Wilson slid out to smother the puck. The rare penalty shot called and no goal for the Sabres on this night. In the third period, Orland Curtinback, all alone in the slot with the puck, put away a 10-footer at the 9.05 mark after Mackey got away from Jerry Meehan in the corner to set the play up. Uh, Roger Crozier was partially screened when Mackey closed out the scoring from only 10 feet away just 29 seconds later to make the final score 4-1. to And by the way, uh, we talked about Paul Andrea. He was one of the many uh acquisitions and moves that Punch Imlac was making this week and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later in the show. Our final highlighted game of this week was a late Saturday afternoon contest that Saturday afternoon Pacific time in Vancouver between the Leafs and the Canucks again it was a 5 p.m. Vancouver start and that was done of course to accommodate the Hockey Night in Canada viewers back east who every Saturday night are accustomed to seeing their beloved Maple Leafs While there was some grousing, as there usually is from people on the West Coast about the people back East and how they seem to get their way all the time, in reality, nobody really minded the 5 o'clock start, and uh, reports indicate to us that there was some rather lively nightlife around downtown Vancouver, after that five o'clock show now of course the final score of the game may have had something to do with the good general good mood that is of the Vancouver fans the Canucks won over the Leafs for the second straight time on home ice although this time it was closer than the last time the Canucks nipped the buds by a 3-2 score Jacques Plante once again started in goal for the Maple Leafs and he was spectacular early in the game but he seemed to injure a knee in the second period there was a scramble in front of the net Plante went down to uh, smother the puck and he he left he got up uh, very slowly left to the ice and went to the Toronto bench jock uh, skated right by the referee skated right by coach john mcclellan and then just sat down on the bench took off his mask and seemed to be just sort of taking a breather while referee gilmore skated to the door of the bench where plant was sitting and uh, surveyed and sort of supervised the treatment jake was being given by the toronto trainer An animated conversation took place between the referee and the goalkeeper and finally, Plant seemed to wave Gilmore off, grabbed his mask, put it back on and walked out back onto the ice although he could be seen flexing an injured knee. Jock found in a few minutes though that he wasn't able to complete the game and he was replaced by backup Bruce Gamble. Now Gamble did not play poorly the rest of the way although some feel he could have been faulted for a bad angle play on a goal by Dale Talon, which tied the game late in the second period. In the first period, the teams exchanged goals, but the Leafs grabbed the lead late in the final minute of that opening frame when Gary Monahan scored for the Maple Leafs.
1: Selwood got to it. In the last minute of the first period, it's one all. 20, Monahan to McMillan. Going in with Keon, on a backhander, hard stopping that one. Nick Miller gets it again, he shoots. Hard stop it the game, they score the rebound. Number 20 Monahan put it in the net.
0: The Leafs continued to hold the lead until late in the second period when a brilliant end-to-end rush by the heralded rookie for the Canucks, Dale Talon, beat Gamble from a bad angle with only 46 seconds left in the second period.
1: We're in the last minute of the second period, it's 2-1 to Toronto. Jim McKinney putting it in the Vancouver zone and Talon brings it out. Dale Talon rushing at center. Trying to go over that line. Goed by McKinney. Still the puck. He shoots the score. The
0: Canucks finally grab the lead at the uh, 9.46 mark of the final period when Murray Hall scored on a broken play amid confusion in front of the Toronto goal and that made the final score 3-2 to for Vancouver.
1: All tied up with 9.22 played in the third period. Face off in the Toronto zone. Curtain back against Ullman. Curtain back getting the puck. Over to uh, Mackey who fanned on it. Mackey wound up there but didn't deliver. Went off the heel of a stick. Curtinback out at center with the puck. For Mackey. Over the leaf line in on Ricky Lee. Mackey getting center shot hit Lee. Mackey centered it in front. Halt to Kowack and a Curtinback shoot. Gamble has and he's he
0: Immediately after the game, all the talk was about what the slumbering Maple Leafs plan to do to drag the team out of the doldrums in which they find themselves. There were rumors that Coach McClellan was on the way out the door and that major trades were about to happen especially one deal involving the Leafs and the Boston Bruins that initially reported only in Boston and Toronto papers now seem to be making news right around the National Hockey League. Of course that's a nice segment segue into what our next feature is all about, trades. The week began with Buffalo Sabres general manager Punch Punchimlach vowing to add some scoring punch to his expansion Sabres who were uh, charitably described as offensively challenged, I guess. He said he was going to get players that would help the Sabres by hook or by crook. And if you know Imlac, that means he had a plan. It might not be orthodox, but it would certainly be something that would accomplish his goal. Other than spectacular rookie Gilbert Perrault, the Sabres have virtually no one upon whom they can uh, lean to provide some offensive spark so Punch has got to look for goals from somewhere and you know that there are players he has his eye on and the ever dependable Imlac you can always depend on him to make news somehow did pull off something of a coup later in the week but he had to use all of his managerial wiles in order to arrange it and his former club the Maple Leafs We're not happy with all of Punch's machinations. How how did this take place? Well, here's uh, basically what we put together from a very confusing time this week around the Sabres and the NHL in general. Last Sunday... As the week began, it became known that the Detroit Red Wings were putting veteran defenseman Bobby Bond on waivers. Now that's a whole nother story all by itself. Why the Red Wings, who had been not good defensively, were willing to part with a solid uh, performer like Bond was anybody's guess. But Coach Harkness and Arena manager Jim Bishop seemed to want it that way, so Bond was made available. The veteran Bond, whom the Maple Leafs lost in the 1967 expansion draft to the then-California Seals, was exactly the type of veteran present that Toronto was sorely lacking on their blue line and they made it known that they would uh, seriously be considering claiming Bonham waivers from the Red Wings. There was, however, one snag in that scenario. Punch with the Sabres having a worse record than even that of the Maple Leafs, had the second order of claim behind the California golden seals the seals were not about to reclaim bond who makes 45 grand a year and would have to pay another 30 grand on the waiver price wasn't financially possible for the seals to do that so it was up to Imlac to decide if he wanted bond or not Bobby Bond was not the player that the Sabres really needed. They required scoring help and Bob Bond scored all of one goal playing a regular shift and regular games for the Red Wings last season. But Imlac, seeing an asset available for only cash, claimed Bond from Detroit much to the chagrin of and the frustration of the Maple Leafs. They viewed Imlac's move as a direct slap at the Toronto club. And of course, that's exactly what it was. Now Imlac, as we mentioned, had no use for Bond. It's not that he didn't like Bob. It was simply that he wasn't the type of player the Sabres needed. But before he had claimed Bond, Imlac had actually made a few phone calls. And one of those was to Scotty Bowman, the general manager of... The St. Louis Blues Bowman owned the Sabres some future considerations for the deal that had set veteran winger Bill Sutherland to St. Louis a week or so previously that was another uh uh Moved by Imlac where he claimed a guy off waivers. Sutherland was claimed from Philadelphia and then he was dealt to the Blues for these considerations. Now Imlac was calling in the favor. And this does get a little complicated boys and girls so stay with me on this one. Okay. Imlach uh, talked to Bowman and he offered to send Bond to the Blues in exchange for an injury-prone but offensively gifted left winger by the name of Larry Keenan, whom Imlak had had as a very highly thought of prospect in Toronto back in the early 60s. Also going to Buffalo with Keenan was a veteran defenseman by the name of Jongi Talbot, who won a number of Stanley Cups with the Montreal Canadiens. And by the way, Talbot was probably at least equal to what Bond could give the Sabres on defense. So Keenan was a bonus in this particular transaction. But that wasn't all that was actually included in this deal, although the official records will not show it. There was another minor announcement that Imlac had made another waiver acquisition, and that was young right winger Steve Atkinson. Now, Atkinson was a very interesting case. You may remember during the exhibition season, we told you that Atkinson played two uh, friendly games, two exhibition games, preseason games for the Sabres while they took a look at him with the permission of the St. Louis Hockey Club. Well, in those two games, Atkinson scored four goals, two in each contest. Now, what that did, it, it made Imlac very interested in young Atkinson, who, by the way, played all his junior hockey in nearby Niagara Falls, Ontario. But it also opened Scotty Bowman's eyes, and the price that Imlac was asked to pay by Bowman to acquire Atkinson was more than Punch was willing to give so no deal was made. So Imlach was now insisting that as part of this transaction Steve Atkinson be included in the deal. There were, was talk that Bowman did not want to appear to be giving up too much to get Bond and he didn't want to include Atkinson in the trade. Imlach really didn't care as long as he got the player. He didn't care who looked good or who looked bad. And he told Bowman, put Atkinson on waivers. California isn't going to take him because they can't afford to bring in players. And we'll pick him up. And you'll look like you just got rid of an extra body. And everybody will be happy. That's what Scotty did. Imlac made the claim. And Steve Atkinson finally became an official member of the Buffalo Sabres, and he scored a goal in his very first game. So again, while the official record does not show this, Bobby Bond picked up on waivers from the Red Wings, then sent to the Sabres, and then to the St. Louis Blues. Imlac gets Bond for $30,000 and then trades him for Larry Keenan, Guy Talbot, And Steve Atkinson, not a bad haul for $30,000. You get three NHL players. Good move by Punch Imlach. Of course, as a side note, seeing Imlach not only steal Bond from under their noses and then uh, turn what appears to be a tidy profit by dealing him to St. Louis, the Leafs were pretty infuriated and more specifically, general manager Stafford Smythe although people said it was Jim Gregory we know it was Smythe who was pushing Gregory to lodge a protest on all these moves with National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell Uh, nobody seemed to know really what the gripe was other than Imlac was doing something despite the Maple Leafs and that more than anything would upset Smythe Campbell placed the this particular protest in a circular file that was on the floor beside his desk at the NHL offices. Nothing more was heard about it. Of course, this is not the end of this particular story, at least if you're Bobby Bond, and there is a happy ending. That is if you're a Maple Leaf or Bobby Bond fan. But that doesn't happen the next week, and we'll tell you all about that in next week's show. Imlak wasn't particularly done yet this week as well. Uh, Before the week was out, he claimed winger Paul Andrea from the California Golden Seals. Andrea is a gifted offensive player, and he's led uh, leagues in scoring wherever he's played. He's been a successful shooter everywhere except the National Hockey League. This year with the Seals, he played 10 games, and he had scored one goal, but he was seeing very little action under coach Freddie Glover, Uh, Freddie likes a little more sandpaper in his players, and that's one thing Andrea doesn't uh, particularly give to a team. Paul did lead the Western Hockey League in goals with 44 last year, playing for the Western Hockey League, Vancouver Canucks, and Punch might have been taking a shot at the Canucks by bringing in uh, one of their former players. Anyway, Paul Andre ended up with Buffalo. He did get a penalty shot in his first game with the Sabres, as we mentioned earlier in our highlighted games, but that was unsuccessful. The newspapers in Boston began the week under the assumption that the Leafs and Bruins would complete a major trade within a matter of hours if not days at the most. Last week we told you about a whole range of deals that the Boston Globe was reporting were possibly imminent but as it turned out as it usually turns out with trade rumors It was a lot of wishful thinking on the Globes part. It did seem, however, that there were some legs to the idea that Toronto center Mike Walton was the object of Boston general manager Milt Schmidt's affections. It just didn't seem that Schmidt was willing to give Toronto what the Leafs figured Walton should be worth to a divisional rival. Nonetheless, the rumors continued to swirl, and eventually... They reached the newspapers in Vancouver by Thursday. That's when the Vancouver Sun breathlessly reported that a trade was on the verge of completion between the Leafs and the Bruins. There's no byline to this story. The uh, dateline says it's Pittsburgh uh, but it seems to have Hal Sigurdson's fingerprints on it. And here's what Sigurdson wrote. He said, the Boston Bruins and Toronto Maple Leafs are on the verge of completing a four-player trade the Sun learned here in Pittsburgh Wednesday evening. The deal would send center Derek Sanderson and penalty-killing ace Eddie Westfall to the Maple Leafs in return for center Mike Walton and defenseman Jim McKinney. The item goes on to say that all the trade speculation started when Bruins GM Milt Schmidt made several unscheduled visits to Toronto and also went to see the Leafs on the road recently. As the week would go on, no trade would materialize between the Leafs and Bruins, although it did uh, actually catch the fancy of many maple east fans including myself i was never a walton fan i always liked eddie westfall mainly because eddie had a cottage near dunville ontario and we ran into him one summer out there And of course, Sanderson was an intriguing figure. This trade was doomed to never take place. Uh, One of the main figures in the deal, actually the two main figures, were Derek Sanderson and Mike Walton. Those two were very well acquainted, and it would seem that Sanderson would want to stay in Boston if his good friend Walton, who's also best buddies with Bobby Orr, partners in a hockey school, came to the team. So, those guys would rather be together, and I don't think Sanderson would want to report to Toronto. Last week, we told you about a deal between the Red Wings and the Rangers that would send Peter Stemkowski to the Rangers for Larry Brown and Don Luce. Deal didn't happen right away. Stemkowski flat out refused to report to New York, and the deal was in danger of being called off. Now, that was really strange to us. Why would anybody? A good National League player like uh, Pete Stemkowski not want to get out of Detroit and go to a contender like the New York Rangers. Well, Stemkowski eventually relented, agreed to go to New York, and the teams announced that the trade was simply defenseman Brown for forward Stemkowski, and there was no mention of Don Luce. And those of us that followed this selling as closely wondered why Don Luce's name had been mentioned Previously, but now he wasn't part of the deal. Well, as it turned out in this case, where there was smoke, it definitely indicated some sort of a fire. The two teams also announced a day or so later that Don Luce was indeed being traded to the Red Wings in exchange for a minor league winger by the name of Steve Andersick. Both general managers Sid Abel and Emil Francis insisted that this was a separate trade that was in no way related to any part of the earlier deal don't know why it was it's all very curious but that's the way both GMs seem to want it by the way concerning stemkowski a people wondered why he changed his mind and went to New York. Well, this is one version that we heard that makes a lot of sense. If you remember when Stemkowski played in Toronto, he had a radio show on a local Toronto radio station, and Pete always expressed an interest in becoming a broadcaster, especially in the media medium of radio. Well, Emil Francis found that out, and he went to Stemkowski, after the deal was made, and told Stemmer that opportunities in radio for an athlete, especially one who uh, has the personality of Stemkowski, were much greater than they possibly could be in Detroit. Stemkowski considered this fact, knew that he wanted to be in broadcasting after his playing days was over, and guess what? New York suddenly seemed like not such a bad idea after all, and that's why Pete Stamkowski agreed to report to the Rangers. Oh, one more trade note another player whose name keeps popping up all over the place in talk of trades is that of retired Canadian center Ralph Backstrom. Ralph had hinted that he might return to the NHL, and most observers had him going to Vancouver in some sort of draft pick deal. Uh, one observer who didn't have him going to Vancouver was more than an observer. He was Canucks general manager Bud Poyle. He discounted all the rumors saying that Ralph would be acquired by the Canucks. But sa- instead, he told reporters that he thinks Ralph is going to the West Coast all right, but it would be one of the California teams either, the Seals or the Kings. In any event, Bud said Ralph wouldn't be going to B.C. under any circumstances. Now, Vancouver writer Hal Sigurdsson, who is all over trade rumors, as you've probably gathered from these shows, says that insiders in hockey tell him that Backstrom will end up with the St. Louis Blues. We promised you an update on the Stafford-Smite tax evasion uh, trial this week, and we have a doozy for you for sure. On Monday of the week, Ontario County Court Judge Joseph Kelly ruled that he is refusing to try Smythe on the income tax evasion charges, and he was basically throwing the case out of court. Now, in case you're wondering, a county court judge in 1970 would be the equivalent of an Ontario Superior Court judge in the present day of 2020. I remember when I heard this news, um, I was at University of Western Ontario, and I gave my dad a call at home. Uh, We always talked about politics and current events. My dad was a really, really, really very bright guy, uh, enormously well-informed, involved in politics and uh, uh, emergency services at the local level in our area. I asked him, what could have happened to get this case being thrown out of court? Uh, And he, knowing I was a journalism student, very interested in these current events, told me that if some enterprising journalist was to do some investigative work, that investigative work might reveal that Mr. Smythe, Mr. Ballard, and Judge Kelly were not completely unknown to each other. I always wondered about that back then, and now reading back 50 years and seeing what I've seen over the time that has uh, passed since then, I wonder about it a lot more. Canadian Justice Minister John Turner, basically he heads the courts in our country, said later in the week that the decision by Judge Kelly would definitely be appealed. And while he didn't come right out and say it, of course he couldn't come out and say it, it certainly sounded like the fix was in regarding the outcome of this case on Thursday the Toronto Globe and Mail published a huge long six column story uh, basically an explanation of how Judge Kelly came to his decision now I'm not going to bore you with all the legalese uh, of this case and by the way this is stuff I taught years later at the Ontario Police College so I understood it and I'll try and simplify it here as best I can try to give you the basics of it the offenses under which Smythe were charged uh, are classed as dual procedure offenses, meaning that the Crown prosecutors have the right to elect whether to proceed with the trial by way of summary conviction, which is, of course, a less serious level, or to go into trial by way of indictment. Now, proceeding by way of summary conviction would result in something like a fine of around 25 bucks, or up to one year in jail. That's the worst that could happen. Going by indictment uh, provides for a period of incarceration of not less than two months and not more than five years, along with both the incarceration and a fine of up to $10,000. It was obvious that the government at this time decided that Uh, people like Smythe and Ballard should be made examples of in uh, bilking the Canadian government of in Smythe's case over nearly $280,000 and that people should get the message that this kind of behavior is not going to be tolerated even by the owners of iconic professional sports teams there'll be a lot more on this story in the coming weeks and we'll have it for you as it develops We have a few news and notes from the previous week as well. Some things we wanted to bring to you. Uh, North Stars defenseman Tom Reed collapsed after the team's 3-1 win over Toronto last weekend. He was immediately examined by Toronto doctor Hugh Smythe, who said that Reed was suffering from, quote, nervous exhaustion and possibly had an ulcer. More tests were scheduled once Reed was well enough to fly back to Minnesota. Ed Conrad of the Philadelphia Daily News was one of several reporters who wrote that Red Wings coach Ned Harkness would soon be dismissed from his position with the Red Wings. Harkness uh, spoke to Conrad and said he wasn't worried about job security. He's apparently got lots of money but he said Harkness said that losing is what really bothers him. Well he might not have to be bothered much longer if he's not coaching the Red Wings. It's very unlikely that they're going to turn things around with the cast of characters they have there. Still with the Red Wings, Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press says that getting a haircut, wasn't enough to get Gary Unger out of Harkness's doghouse and into his good books. Unger is in the doghouse for what Harkness is calling indifferent play. Now, Coach Ned is starting to sound a lot like Claude Ruel of the Canadians. Once you land in his bad side, you're stuck there for a good long time. The National Hockey League this week decided to keep the NHL club roster's increase it had been experimenting with. Teams are now allowed to dress 18 skaters and two goalkeepers instead of the previous 16 and two. This is a blow to the weaker teams in the league simply because if teams could not dress two extra skaters those players would be sent to the minors to earn their money rather than sit around the NHL and be paid for not playing. Many of those players would have to go through waivers and then would be available to the weak sisters of the NHL. Of course, the established teams don't want to give up assets, so they get to keep two extra bodies who end up riding the bench and playing less than five minutes in a game, but at least they don't go to rivals to make the weak clubs any stronger. The rich get richer and the poor remain on the bottom. Veteran National Hockey League defenseman Leo Boyven has decided to retire from the game and become a full-time scout with the Minnesota North Stars. Uh, it is known that if Leo wanted to continue his playing career... The North Stars had a deal in place whereby they would send Leo to the Sabres. They actually gave Buffalo general manager Punch Punchimlac permission to negotiate a new deal with Boyvon. But Leo wouldn't take the bait, decided he'd had enough after coming to the NHL in 1951, the year I was born. And he's becoming a full-time scout. And who knows, maybe Leo would get into coaching at some point. <laughs> And I have another Hal Sigurdsson report for you. This time, the uh, Vancouver Sun reporter says that former Canucks uh, of the WHL general manager Joe Crozier can have the dual role of GM coach of the California Golden Seals anytime he wants it. Uh, Sigurdson writes that friends of Crozier told him, that they uh, know Joe has been offered the job in California. He only has to say yes, and he'll be taking over immediately. Crozier, by the way, said later in the week that he didn't know anything about it. He did not deny talking to the Seals, but he said that he had not been told that General Manager Frank Selke nor Coach Fred Glover were going to be dismissed. And here's a new one I hadn't heard before. Uh, Blues defenseman Noel Picard, very intense guy, was in a game against the Boston Bruins this week. He was on for a particularly long shift and exhausted. He headed for the bench, got through the door, and sat down, put his head down to relax and catch his breath. Only problem was Noel, the Blues truculent defenseman, was on the bench of the Boston Bruins everybody was laughing except Noel who's head down everybody in the rink seemed to see that uh, Noel had gone to the wrong bench but he didn't realize it for quite a bit until the next whistle when he sheeplessly left the Bruins group and headed back to his St. Louis teammates. So that's our show for this week, everyone. And what did we learn in this first week of November? Well, we learned the trades are actually being completed. They're more than just rumors, but the rumors that we're talking about weren't coming through. These were trades that kind of came out of the blue. We had news on the Stafford-Smythe tax case and what happened there may have raised more questions than it did uh, provide answers and there'll be more on that. And we learned that National Hockey League defenseman Bobby Bond had a very busy week. We had Bob's itinerary, but he wasn't quite done moving yet next week uh, we have a few uh, pretty interesting things that went on we'll cover a huge brawl between the Bruins and Canadians in Boston as we go into 1970s these kinds of bench clearing messes would become more regular uh, than they were through the earlier years they happened but not with the frequency we are about to see over the next few years We'll find out that the Maple Leafs will use will lose goalie Jacques Plante with a knee injury. And that begs the question, who's going to be the backup for Bruce Gamble? And the Detroit Red Wings next week will go to great pains to deny that there is an open revolt within the team. Now, they're denying it. They're saying it isn't happen, which of course tells us that there is something very rotten in the city of Detroit. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. We can't thank him enough for all his hard work. Andy is now in the business of producing podcasts professionally. And if you're thinking of starting a broadcast of some sort, Uh, contact me I will hook you up with one of the best in the business Andy is a true broadcast media professional he'll do a wonderful job for you as you can tell he does with this podcast The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction music, and if you ever get a chance when things get back to normal to see them perform live, they put on a great high-energy show. Other musical pieces... Uh, and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well our research comes from files of the Toronto Star the Toronto Globe and Mail and of course the many fine publications found at our sponsors newspapers.com you can find us on Twitter at at hockey 50 years we're on Facebook under 50 years ago in hockey we have a wordpress site hockey 50 years We're on YouTube uh, with the podcast now and you can get us wherever podcasts can be downloaded. Thanks again for everyone for tuning into this week's show and on that note, we'll see you next time.